So today we are going to consider Psalm 1. Next week we'll consider Psalm 2. And these two Psalms form an introduction to the entire book of Psalms, as Jesus referred to it. So Psalm 1 begins with blessing, Psalm 2 ends with blessing. So those are kind of the bookends of this, this introduction. And so if you are able, I'm going to ask you to stand as I read Psalm 1. And uh, by the way, we're going to use this psalm as a grid for our monthly prayer night tonight. If you can join us for that. Psalm 1. How blessed is the man who does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And he will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither, and in whatever he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. This is God's word. You can be seated. If we allow it to do so, uh, Psalm 1 can give us uh, a renewed vision for our lives. And it's actually a vision for fruitfulness and stability in our lives. Listen again to the description. This is the vision in verse 3. This person will be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water, which yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. And in whatever he does, he prospers. Most of you have probably driven to Denver from here, right? If you're in Western Kansas on I-70, you look around and a lot of times trees are few and far between. But sometimes you see out on the horizon, you see this, this row of trees meandering across the field, right? And you know what's going on there. Those trees are growing by streams of water. And they're, they're lush and they're strong because they're largely unaffected by the heat by the snow, by the winds, because they have this inexhaustible supply of water and nutrients. And that's the vision for our lives that Psalm 1 gives us. We can be the type of people that are largely unaffected by our circumstances. We don't have to be the type of people who say, I'm great because my circumstances are great, or I'm doing terrible because my circumstances are terrible. Uh, None of us want to be that person that's dominated by their emotions, by their their circumstances. Uh, Since life is so unpredictable and since suffering is so inevitable, we need to be the type of people who can thrive in any and every circumstance. We need a type of stability. We need a type of of fruitfulness that uh, transcends our circumstances. And we don't become that type of person by accident, okay? You don't just wake up and you're this resilient, fruitful person. Psalm 1 tells us that we have to be very deliberate. We have to be the type of people that avoid one path and the type of of people that intentionally take another path. And so Psalm 1 lays out very clearly these two contrasting paths, the path of the godly and the path of the ungodly. And as we consider these two ways of living, I want you to actually consider your life. Bring to mind your life. 
And so this is different from what we say we believe. We say we believe all sorts of things, but the litmus test here is how do we actually think? How do we actually speak? How do we actually behave? What is the life that we actually live? And so we see three, three contrasts between these two ways of life. The first contrast involves the controlling influence of our lives. Verses one and two. The Psalm, Psalm one, verses one and two say, verse one says, if you want a life marked by stability and fruitfulness, you have to be very careful, very careful about what influence is controlling your life. Again, verse one says, how blessed is the man who does not walk, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked, nor stand in the path of sinners, nor sit in the seat of scoffers. And so he's describing the person who is blessed. And that word is kind of cliche sometimes, but in the Bible, if you're blessed, that means the favor of God rests upon you. God showers down his blessing upon your life. And so uh, he bestows his favor on those who refuse to let ungodly people and ungodly perspectives dominate their lives. And so three things are true of this person. It actually says three things, there are three things this person does not do. First of all, this person does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. And wicked is kind of an old school. Some of you are old enough to remember when the term that wicked meant wicked, okay? It meant evil, like sinful. Today, wicked kind of means cool. That's a wicked car, right? And so we're not talking about that. We're talking about wicked, wicked, okay? First of all, this person doesn't walk in the counsel of the wicked. He doesn't listen to the advice of people who, who, don't, who hate God, people who live different from God. They don't listen to that advice and live that way. We're going to see in verse 2, they actually listen to the counsel of God. They accept that and live that way. Second, saying the same thing another way, this person does not stand in the path of sinners. And so if we, need, if we want to experience God's blessing, we have to be very mindful of the path that we're traveling on. We're not the type of people that just take any random path. I'm going to live my life by trial and error and hope I end up somewhere desirable. Now, this person very intentionally says, I'm not going to follow people who, who advocate a way of life and live differently from the will of God. Thirdly, saying the same thing another way, this person does not sit in the seat of scoffers. And a scoffer is a person who mocks. A, a scoffer is the person who mocks, makes fun of, uh, just, just uh, blast, uh, uh, blasphemes against God. And it's kind of a, an industry in our day. It's very fashionable, actually, to kind of mock the God of the Bible and say he's a God who's a tyrant and all his commands are just arbitrary and they're just these, these picky rules. And so the person who wants the blessing of God distances him or herself from that way of thinking, that type of mocking, slanderous voices. Instead, the dominant influence in our lives needs to be God himself. And so, but his delight, verse 2, is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. And the word law there is the word Torah. And when we think of law, we think of a list of do's and don'ts. We think of a list of regulations. And, uh, but, and, and sometimes the word law does refer to the Ten Commandments. Sometimes it refers to the entire Hebrew Scripture. But the, the most basic meaning of law, Torah, is, is um, let me get it right, is instruction. And so if a person loves 
the Torah, loves the law, this is a person who is teachable. This is a person who is passionate about learning from God. This person wants to learn from God as opposed to listening to the wicked, the, the, the sinners, the unrighteous. This person learns from God and delights in listening to God. And so not surprisingly, and in his law, he meditates day and night, meaning all the time, meaning all day long. I mentioned this this past summer, but uh, John Ortberg pointed out that if you know how to worry, if you know how to worry, you know how to meditate. It's the same exact thing. You're just mulling something over and over in your mind. And so instead of meditating on the counsel of the wicked, you are meditating on the Word of God. And so it can, be, it can be a large passage, it can be a small passage. Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. The Lord, Yahweh, he's my shepherd. Yahweh, the creator God, he's my shepherd. He's my shepherd. He knows me personally. He looks out for me personally. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me to water. He gives me nourishment. He gives me rest. He protects me from my enemies. The Lord is my shepherd. And so this person mulls over the Word of God and learns and internalizes, just marinates his or her mind with, with God's truth and learns. We had a great discussion in our, our life group about this verse. And one of the things we talked about is the relationship between delight and meditating. And I've always thought that delighting comes first. Whatever we delight in, we think about, we talk about. It's whether K-State football or woodworking or grandkids or whatever, whatever you delight in, you think about it and you just talk about it. You poke them and they start, they just go, it just comes out of them. And so I've always thought that if we delight in God's word, uh, then, then that fuels our meditation. Then we think about it day and night. And I think that's, that's true. It does work that way. But somebody pointed out that, that it also works the other way. When we meditate it fuels our delight. In other words, we taste and see that the Lord is good. We, we understand something from Scripture, and we say, this is so good. I need more of this. And we keep going back to God. We keep, uh, we're fascinated. We're enamored with God. And so thinking about meditating day and night, yeah, it's not the, it's not the person, this person no longer says, yeah, I, I'm supposed to read the Bible, because this is what Christians are supposed to do. This person is enamored with God and his ways, fascinated. And so this person welcomes and, and, and takes every chance to meditate. And so I would ask you, what is the controlling, the dominant influence in your life? What is the, what is the loudest voice in your mind? I mean, honestly. Sometimes when I'm honest, I say, you know, I, 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 like, I like listening to things. I like music. I like podcasts. I like listening to, to radio, some TV. If I'm not careful, I can fill up every hour of the day with voices that aren't God's. They're not always bad. But if I'm not careful, the voice of God can be crowded out and kind of drowned out. And so I need to make sure that the loudest voice in my mind is God's voice. And that comes from delighting in and meditating on his instruction day and night. And if, you, if you, you, you're sitting there, you think, well, I don't delight. Where do I start in this? I don't have any motivation. I'd, I'd recommend 
I don't recommend crying out to God. This is not some back burner issue. I mean, this is the determining factor on whether you experience the blessing of God or not. This is the determining factor on whether you persevere and you're going to be fruitful in the tough times in your life. If you live long enough, you will suffer. You need to, you need to, to establish these habits before the tough times come. And so this is important. I encourage you, cry out to God. Go to Psalm 119. It talks about it over and over and over. The psalmist is crying out to God uh, to teach him. The second contrast is between the stability and fruitfulness of these, the lives of the people who take these two paths. You've already seen in verse 2. And this is, this is the stability, this fruitfulness comes to the person who lives out verses 1 and 2. It'll be like a tree planted by streams of water. Yields fruit in its season, its leaf does not wither. And then he says, whatever he does, he prospers. And in our day, we think of prosperity primarily in terms of health and wealth. Uh, The the scriptures actually have a more nuanced understanding of prosperity. In the old covenant, uh, it's true. It, It is very much a, a prosperity, a material prosperity. Those that, that follow God, they're going to have big estates. They're going to have a lot of kids. Their cows aren't even going to miscarry. There's going to be all this prosperity. You see that. It's pretty predominant in the Old Covenant. But essentially, it's what we find here. The essence of prosperity is spiritual success. It involves fruitfulness, both personally, you know, fruit like love, joy, peace, and patience. That's a fruitful life. If you have self-control, that type of fruitfulness. And then fruitfulness in relationships. Uh, this person isn't just a walking landmine. This, this person actually knows how to have fruitful relationships. And this person perseveres even in the midst of disappointment, suffering, and hardships. Because the righteous increasingly align themselves with God, a couple things are at play. Number one, they just avoid. Psalm 32.10 says, many are the sorrows of the wicked. If you align yourself with God, you just avoid all sorts of sorrows, all sorts of heartache, all sorts of turmoil, because you just don't walk down that path. As well, you invite the grace of God. You invite the blessing of God in your life. And the imagery of a tree uh, suggests something else very significant. The imagery of a tree suggests that we should think long-term, not short-term. A tree doesn't get strong and lush and fruitful in a couple weeks. A tree becomes that way over years. And so if you were just starting on this journey, you just started walking with God, you just started meditating on Scripture, don't be discouraged if your life isn't radically different in three weeks, okay? Uh, think about months and years. Imagine what your life can be like in a year, a year from now. Uh, somebody, somebody uh, maybe you've heard this, this sentiment, is that we, we tend to overestimate what we can do in a week, and we tend to underestimate what we can do in a year. I find that that's true spiritually. A lot of times I think, yeah, man, I want to I I kill this sin by next Tuesday, okay? You know, yeah, it doesn't really work that way usually. But a year from now, if I marinate my mind, I saturate my heart and mind, and I seek God, a year from now, I'll look back and I'll say, man, God did an amazing thing in my life. And so we think long-term with the image of a tree. The contrast in verse 4, the lives of the wicked are very unstable and very 
insignificant, unfruitful. The wicked are not so, but they are like chaff which the wind drives away. And some of you are in, in agriculture, and you understand this a lot better than me, but chaff refers to the light, the husks that surround the grain, like, like barley or wheat. And uh, in biblical times, and even in, in some cultures now, the farmers will gather the grain, such as the barley, put it in a pile, throw it up into the air, and the grain falls back to the ground, and the husks are blown away. This is the author's way of saying the wicked are lightweights, okay? As opposed to the tree, which is strong, fruitful, firm, weathers the storm, the, the wicked are, are blown away like the chaff. Now, at this point, you may be sitting there thinking, kind of looking at me with your head turned to the, to the side, looking at me one eye, you know, this sounds good, sounds very clean cut, but this isn't the way it works, okay? Many times, the wicked prosper, and the righteous are just trampled down. The, the godly are persecuted, and they experience more trouble than, than anybody else. And that's, that's actually a great observation, and it, it reminds us that we need to see Psalm 1 in light of the overall, uh, or the rest of the, the, the larger book of Psalms, and in light of the rest of Scripture. Uh, Psalm 1 is, is often classified as wisdom literature. It has all the marks of classic wisdom literature, meaning one of, one of the hallmarks is that it describes the way things normally are, not the way they always are. And so in most generations in most cultures. Uh, this is true. Uh, the, the godly are strong and they, they stand and they persevere and the wicked are very lightweight. But there are times when the wicked prosper. And Psalms actually wrestles with this quite a bit. If you keep, if you keep reading in Psalms, you'll find the first book of Psalms, the first block. Psalms is written in five books. It contains five books. And the first one especially is full of laments. And this is the psalmist saying, God, you've said that you're going to bless my life. I'm righteous. I'm following your commands. I'm dying down here. Where are you? Are you why don't you come through for me? And when you get to Psalm 70, 73, uh, it's a psalm of Asaph, and it just deals with this issue in a profound way. And there Asaph is recounting this internal conversation he had about the prosperity of the wicked. And Asaph said, when I saw the prosperity of the wicked, they're at ease, they have everything they want, and then I look at myself and I have this hard life and it looks like God doesn't even notice me. He said, I almost abandoned my faith. He said, I almost blasphemed uh, to, to other followers. But then significantly says, but I entered the sanctuary. I entered back into the presence of God and I came to my senses and I actually realized that the wicked, though it looks like they have everything, they're in a very precarious place. Their, their, feet, is gonna, their feet are going to slip and they're going to be destroyed. It says, actually, then I understood that surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. So he came back to God, back to his word, and that's what helped him persevere. And so we should be drawn to this vision of being as stable and fruitful as a tree planted by streams of water. And we should be warned by the prospect of uh, being blown away uh, because we're walking down the wrong path. And again, the difference involves the dominating influence, the controlling influence in our lives. The third contrast involves the ultimate destiny of these two groups of people, verses 5 and 6. The psalmist looks to the future, the future destiny of both groups. 
He says, since the wicked are like chaff, verse 5, therefore the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the assembly of the righteous. And the judgment, it's sometimes called the day of the Lord. And in that day, the psalmist says, the wicked will not stand. And the, the image there is that they have fallen to the ground and they're not able to get up. They're not able to rise up. And throughout scripture, we find this, this image that God humbles those who walk in pride. He brings them low. And those that are low, those that, that are, are, are humble or humiliated in this life, he exalts. And so that's the image here. Stated another way in the second half of verse five, says sinners will not stand in the assembly of the righteous or the congregation of the righteous. God has a congregation, okay? He has his people. And one day they will all be gathered together. Everybody who knows him, everybody who's believed in him, everybody who's loved him, everybody who's followed into this life, they'll be able to stand in the assembly, in the congregation. Those who have not followed God, those who've taken the path of the wicked, have rejected God in this life, will not stand in the assembly of the righteous. Verse six, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. And so he knows, when, when God knows something, it's not just uh, informationally, it's not just, a, God's not just a huge database somewhere in the sky. When he knows the way of the righteous, it means that he is intimately acquainted with them. He's compassionate toward them because he knows the way of the righteous. The implication here is that he will bring them safely home. By contrast, the way of the wicked will perish. And so because they've rejected God and his ways, they will not, they will, uh, uh, they will not experience his protection or his welcome. And scripture talks about this in a lot of different places. This is a hard truth, but, but it's, it's really all over scripture. In Matthew 7, for example, Jesus taught about these two ways. There's a broad way and a narrow way. This broad way, this broad path, uh, if you take that path, you're gonna have a lot of people with you. There are many are on that path. And so if you want a lot of companions, that's the path to take. The problem, Jesus says, is that it's a path that goes off a cliff. It leads to destruction. There's a narrow path. It's the path of discipleship. You don't have near as many options. It's a, it's a narrow path in that sense. And there aren't near as many people walking that path. But it's a path that leads to life. It leads to eternal life. And if this sounds harsh to you, uh, the, the way of the wicked will perish. There's this death that awaits the wicked. Uh, think of a, a scripture like John 3.16 and consider how God himself provides the remedy for those who are perishing. He provides the remedy for the wicked. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, better translation, his unique son, his one and only son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. And so this is the good news. This is the offer. If you're on the path, that, the, the path of wickedness, if you are on the road that leads to destruction, if you are, uh, if you are, are marching toward perishing, you don't have to take that path. You can turn around, you can get on the path that leads to life. And so you, you understand that, that God has sent his one and only son to die for your sin. 
He has sent his son so that you might not perish, but so that you might have eternal life. You believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You are born from above. And when you believe, God does things for you that nobody else could do for you. He removes your sin as far as the east is from the west. Not because you deserve it, but because Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. So your sin is removed. He puts his spirit in you, the spirit of God within you. And by the spirit, he writes his law on your heart. And so he teaches you on a heart level. And so the commands of God aren't just these, these commands on a tablet of stone. No, they're written on our heart. And so internally, we have this desire. We say yes to the things of God. We're internally motivated to understand and live it out and, and walk in the ways of righteousness. And so if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, then you're poised to delight in the law of the Lord. Before you come to faith in Christ, it may, just, it may just seem like mumbo jumbo to you. This is the thing that changed for me. This is the thing that flipped for me when I was 20 years old and I first put my faith in Christ. The most dramatic change I had was in my, my uh, experience with God's word. Before, uh, God's word was superstitious. If there was a stack of books, I, I've learned this from a Sunday school teacher. If there's a stack of books and one of them is a Bible, you better have the Bible on top. I didn't know much more than that. So this is, I was kind of superstitious. After I came to faith in Christ, it was nourishment, life. It was health to me. And that's what you will find if you put your faith in Christ. Eugene Peterson tells a parable that really puts in, into perspective this vision for life that we've been discussing today. And uh, it's a little bit fantastic, but stick with me. He says, imagine a warehouse, and this warehouse contains a group of people. It's men and women, boys and girls. And these people have lived in this warehouse their entire life. They were born in this warehouse. They live their lives in this warehouse. They will die in this warehouse unless something happens. They have everything they need. They have all their physical need, needs met in this warehouse. There's no doors in and out of the warehouse, but there are windows but there's an inch of, of dust on these windows, just accumulation over the years. They've been in the warehouse so long. But he says, imagine one day that some of these children get curious, children are curious, and they drag a stool over and they climb up to these windows and they wipe the grime off of one of these windows and they look out. And lo and behold, there are people out there. And there's one group of people and they're very animated and they're pointing up to the sky and there's something up there that, that they're excited about. And so what do the kids do? Well, they look up and what do they see? They see the roof of the warehouse. They see the ceiling. They say, there's nothing up there. Those people are deluded. Those people are crazy. There's nothing to get excited about. And so they go on their business and, and they, 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 uh, they, they uh, just live the life, the life the way they always have. What they didn't realize that those people out there were looking at airplanes and flocks of geese and these magnificent uh, cloud formations. But they think they're crazy. Peterson says, what would happen though if one day one of those kids cut a door out of the warehouse, coaxed his friends out and discovered the immense sky above them and the grand horizons beyond them? That is what happens when we open the Bible. We enter the totally unfamiliar world of God, a world of creation and salvation stretching endlessly above and beyond us. Life in the warehouse never prepared us for anything like this. 
Most of us have grown up in a warehouse. We grow up in this small, bound world, and we think there's only one way of living. There's only one way of thinking. There's only one way of speaking. And it tends to be a very self-centered, self-destructive, petty, small way of thinking, speaking, and living. But what if... What if we leave the warehouse? What if we enter out, enter out into the vast kingdom of God and we come to understand that there is a whole world out there that we didn't even know existed? And that's the vision for Psalm 1. What if we take this, this vision and we understand that if we meditate day and night and delight in God's world, he leads us out into this life of abundance, this life of stability, this life of fruitfulness that we never even knew existed. It's this vast expanse of God's kingdom. And I want to give you a specific example and uh, just to, to let you know what I'm thinking about here. What if we meditated day and night on the, some of the dozens of scriptures that talk about our words, the, the words that we speak? Uh, many Christians are living in a warehouse when it comes to the words we speak. We kind of like, well, this is who I am. That's how I talk. Just deal with it. I'm a black and white person, or I don't share my feelings, or we, we just grow up with all these. This is who I am. This is how I talk. But what if we we wander out into the vast kingdom of God when it comes to our speech? And what if we get clued into the fact, the fact, it's a spiritual reality, our words can either be life-giving or death-dealing. For example, James 1. James says, if a person does not bridle his or her tongue, that person's religion is worthless. Or James 3, James said, the tongue is a restless evil and it's full of deadly poison. What if we pondered that for a week? Matthew 12, Jesus said that one day we will be accountable for every careless word that we speak. Wow. 1 Peter 3, Peter said, do not return evil for evil or insult for insult, but give a blessing Instead, many times our blessing, the blessing comes through our words. Proverbs, Proverbs 15, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. What if we actually understood and believed that? If you ever hear somebody say, hey, I just got to get this on my, off my chest, you better duck. They're not thinking, I want to make this acceptable to you. They're like, I'm going to say this and I don't care the consequences. That's foolish. The words of the wise, the tongue of the wise makes knowledge acceptable. Ephesians 4 talks about speaking the truth in love. Love is patient. Love is kind. Love is not arrogant. Love doesn't hold grudges. Ephesians 4 says, let no unwholesome or rotten word come out of your mouth, but only such a word that builds other people up, that meets the need of the moment, that gives grace to those who hear. What if we had this this very intentional, intentional Uh, view and use of our words. And so what would the body of Christ be like? Honestly, what would the body of Christ be like if we understood and believed and loved everything the scripture says about our speech? And what would our witness be like if we we were, were so, if we embodied everything that the scripture says about our words? 
we would have a, a, a fruitfulness, we would have a stability that we've probably never experienced. And so that's just one example. And so Psalm 1 is inviting us into this vast, fascinating, life-giving world of God's kingdom. That's what it's doing when it tells us to delight in the law of the Lord and meditate day and night. And so, God, we pray that this would be true. We pray that you would accomplish this in our midst, in our lives. We pray that we would be people that love you through your word, that we would be people that are so, te so teachable, that we are desperate to hear from you. God, forgive us for the times when we have, have considered it a burden to listen to you, to come to you, to hear from you. God, give us teachable hearts. May we be kind and helpful to one another in this regard. And pray that we would spur one another on. And God, this is all so that we might, might be the people you've called us to be. We want to experience this fruitfulness for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.